0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 210. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talk to Dr. Keith Kinteg about the development of TDAR and where it's at today. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everyone. Paul, how's it going? It's going pretty good. You know, it's, uh, what, two hours since I talked to you last? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we're I, we're doing something unusual at this time. is why We have two interviews in the same day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I take it you're yeah. still more or less in the same place. Your nomadic lifestyle hasn't taken you someplace uh, totally uh, dramatically different than before. No, nope, I didn't
2: know if I mentioned where I was last time. We're in Las Vegas no, right didn't. now at an RVing event. So, ah. yeah, it was our first day. We got here yesterday. Our e-bikes were stolen this morning off the back of our oh. RV. So, we're dealing with that. That just means it's time for new e-bikes, really. So... Otherwise, yeah, Las Vegas is great.
1: <laughs> so. I'm sure you're not figuring out all sorts of ways to spend money on your RV now that you're at this uh, at this show, okay. right? Exactly.
2: Exactly. So, all right. Well, let's get into our show. So our guest today, we mentioned in the introduction, was actually on the show for episode 92 about five years ago. And we'll link to that in the show notes if you want to go listen to that episode. But. And when we talked about uh, different things back then. So go, again, go ahead and go listen to that. We're going to talk about some of the same things, but we're just going to get a little more into it. So Dr. Keith Kinteg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. So we're going to talk TDAR. You were part of the development effort of TDAR uh, when it first started back in, what was that, 1999, I think I read somewhere. Why don't you just tell us? The impetus behind that. How were you involved specifically? You know, what 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 brought you into the development of TDAR and why?
3: What got it started what got us started, I was at a professor at Arizona State University. We had a bunch of archaeologists and we got along. And Chuck Redman, our chair, sort of suggested maybe we should just get together as faculty and talk every once in a while. Well, that led to a process where we started meeting either every month or every other week, and that went on for about, I think, 20 years. (laughs) So we had a really good group, and one of the things that we started working on is, well, each of us was used to working on our own projects in our own areas and time periods. We said, wouldn't it be interesting if we sort of started to think about comparing our cases Hmm. As soon as we started to do that, even though most of us were working in the Southwest U.S., we still had data sets who were organized in a different way, used different variable names, different coding schemes. And even though it would seem that that might not be so difficult to integrate, it turns out that, you know, with formal databases, that really was a challenge. Okay. About that same time in 1999, the National Science Foundation had a program announcement for social, behavioral, and economic research infrastructure. And we thought, well, we'll try for that. And basically, we put together a proposal to really look at this problem of data integration for purposes of research. So we wanted to be able to compare cases that were done doing different coding schemes, because what we wanted to do is integrate data in a way that people hadn't done it so much, using the raw data. So in a lot of times, synthesis in archaeology involves somebody sitting down and reading all this stuff or mostly reading everybody else's conclusions and then going from there. But sometimes Mm -hmm. those conclusions aren't correct when you go back and look at the data. I mean, a good example Mm -hmm. of this is some of the early tree ring dating of sites in the Southwest before people really developed the methodology. The, The dates were correct, but how you interpret those dates changed. So Emil Howery's dating of a uh, late prehistoric site that turned out to be pretty important. It turned out what he concluded the date of the occupation was, was really, I'm sure at the end of his life, he would not have said the same thing because people mm. had developed better interpretations of how you, you know, the, some of these treeing dates or cutting dates that are way too early because people are reusing beams and so forth. So anyway, we wanted to be able to do our data integration based on the primary data that we're collecting, not just other people's conclusions. Hmm. So we got together with some computer scientists at ASU and put in a proposal. We came pretty close. We were four, They funded three projects and we were number four, but that didn't get funded. <laughs> but in, in 2004, we were funded by the National Science Foundation with a sort of planning grant. And that led to a conference at the National Center for Ecological Analysis and Synthesis in Santa Barbara, where we had, oh geez, um, 31 different participants, mainly archeologists, but also people from computer science and information science to get together. And the the conference was entitled The Promise and Challenge of Archaeological Data Integration. So we're really trying Hmm. to sort of address this problem, research problem of synthesis or data integration. And how do we do that? And so that was in 2004. In 2006, that was published in American Antiquity in an article with the same name. And we argued in that article for the development of a national archaeological information infrastructure, Mm -hmm. which eventually was TDAR. And just a, a sentence from the abstract of that. Concept oriented archaeological data integration will enable the use of existing data to answer compelling new questions and permit syntheses of archaeological data that rely not on others' investigators' conclusions, but on analyses of meaningfully integrated new and legacy data sets. So we're really trying to sort of work on this problem of synthesis and data integration. Okay. That planning grant had little sort of pilot funding, and then in 2006, we got three-quarters of a million dollars from the National Science Foundation to really start a serious implementation of this. You know, Within a month of, of getting that, I got a, I think it was an email or maybe a phone call from the Mellon Foundation saying, basically, would you like to come to New York? We might want to give you some money. Um, Hmm. So uh, don't fall for that (laughs) at 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 their own expense. So I thought, well, (laughs) that's, that's, that's pretty good. And they had independently, I mean, they had a program called scholarly communications and that, I think it's the same program had funded JSTOR, Mm -hmm. the sort of pilot things of JSTOR So they're really interested in this issue of preserving knowledge that's being generated. Mm -hmm. And at some point they got an interest, they sort of saw they had funded a bunch of different kinds of archaeology things in the past, and they got interested in a more general solution to trying to deal with the data problems or the data loss, really, in archaeology. So at the same time, they gave us another planning grant, and that was followed by three and a half million dollars of funding from them. Their goal was a little bit different. I mean, they were happy with the research component, but they were really interested in the problem of just preserving all this data that's getting generated and being lost due to media degradation, computers crashing, to Mm -hmm. CRM firms going out of business, and, you know, what happens to the computers? Well, nothing. And then these data sets that have cost, in many cases, millions of dollars to produce are completely lost. Hmm. So they were more interested in the sort of sustainability uh, issue of the data and making it available for scholars to advance. Well, those two things fit together pretty well. So we were really sort of proceeded with an integrated concept of doing data integration in the context of this national infrastructure that would collect and preserve data, our original sort of focus was on databases and sort of formal coded data sets, but we expanded that to include documents and images and 2 and 3D images and so forth (laughs) as we developed TR to really sort of have a more comprehensive way of just capturing all of the data from archeological projects. So that's what led to the sort of initial development of TDAR was those sort of two projects joining together as a collaboration between archeologists at
2: ASU and computer scientists there as well. Okay, all right. And yeah, we've we've talked to I think several people about TDAR on this show, so people should mm-hmm. be relatively familiar with it, but what's your involvement with TDAR today?
3: Um, Today, I'm on the board of directors. TDAR has an executive director, Chris Nicholson, Mm -hmm. who manages the staff, including the programmers and the data curators that make the the sort of institutional infrastructure of TDAR. TDAR is housed within a Arizona State University Center. So it's the Center for Digital Antiquity. We set up TDAR quite intentionally, though we didn't want it to be an ASU thing as opposed to a Arizona, University of Arizona thing or University of Michigan thing or whatever. We wanted it to be a national institution. And so the board of directors was selected and continues to be selected nationally and internationally, in fact. So mm-hmm. I've served on the board of directors since, since the very beginning of TDAR. And the board is a pretty active and really a great group that's provided a lot of
2: intellectual support. For TDAR. Chris Nicholson was actually on episode 157 of this podcast talking oh, about good. TDAR. So we'll link to that as well. We're going to also change the name to the TDAR podcast. So from this point on, <laughs> multi-dar all, um, all the time. That's right. That's right. If only. I'm curious too. This is at the University of Arizona, Arizona State. Arizona State, sorry about that. You know, oh wow, that's a big that's a big error right there. I'm yeah, gonna have oops. to cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm in cultural resource management archaeology, so is Paul. And you know, TDAR isn't really uh, I should say talked about too much in, in CRM circles, at least up in like Nevada, California, some of the places that I've worked before, and pro- probably because of the data sets and who owns them, to be honest with you, and and what goes on there. If it's a private project, I'm not even sure you're allowed to. Put it in some sort of resource like that. But I'm wondering, primarily today, and we'll, we'll get onto those other uses in a minute here, but primarily today, what is your sense of who's using TDAR as far as institutions or, you know, how they're affiliated, things like that? Over the last several years, our biggest client has actually been the United States Air Force. So
3: they, oh, wow. in the Air Force, there's often only one archaeologist who's assigned to several different bases. And then just due to the way things are structured, those mm-hmm. people change. And so what the Air Force was finding and their various CRM contractors were finding is you know every time there's a change in personnel on the Air Force side, everybody was scurrying around asking for new copies of reports, trying to figure <laughs> out what was going on. And so they have invested in basically taking a lot of their legacy, especially reports, and putting them in TDAR. So they can be found and used, sort of, by them and other people across across the bases. Mm-hmm. So in the CRM world, we should talk about the issue of data ownership and so forth. But I think right. what our one of the things the Mellon Foundation really focused on, which was quite important, is how do you sustain this infrastructure? Who's going to pay for this in the long run? Mm-hmm. And our original model was that the federal agencies when there's a, an undertaking, the federal agencies have some responsibilities. And just like they have responsibilities to curate data and their federal regulations about I mean, to curate artifacts, and there's yeah. a whole code of federal regulations about the curation of artifacts, they have responsibilities that are now very clearly laid out in law and in regulation, both in the National Historic Preservation Act, the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, And then there's some some new legislation that's made it even more explicit. The federal agencies have responsibility to preserve the data that are coming out of archaeological investigations and to make it available um, to the extent that that's uh, appropriate to whoever's interested. So we anticipated, incorrectly as it turns out, that federal agencies would jump at the chance to have a solution to really ways of maintaining these data. Mm -hmm. That's happened sporadically. One of our early supporters was an archaeologist with the Bureau of Reclamation in the Phoenix area office where they were doing millions of dollars of work and really were committed to really the the goals of the National Historic Preservation Act, which is, you know, if the federal government's going to break things, we ought to have some opportunity to preserve the information that's coming out of it. I mean, after all, that is the whole logic (laughs) of the whole cultural heritage infrastructure in the U.S. is to try to preserve the information that's being lost due to actions in which the federal government has, uh, or state governments in some cases, have a hand. Right. So basically we're, we were, and we're still trying to sort of make that happen, to be t- to allow TNAR to become the place that people can both find things and preserve things, can deposit and preserve things for the benefit of other archaeologists and for the general Mm -hmm. public to the extent that they're interested.
2: Right. Okay. Well, that is a good introduction into TDAR again for those who haven't heard it before. So let's take a break and we'll come back and continue this discussion with Dr. Keith Kinteg on the other side. Back in a minute.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.
2: Welcome back to episode 210 of the ArcheoTech podcast, and we're talking to Dr. Keith Kinteg about TDAR and some other things. So, I'm curious, before we get into data ownership, as we were talking about in the last segment, you mentioned TDAR getting some pretty substantial funding from a couple sources early on. How is TDAR funded now, and what do you think the security of that is going into the future?
3: Uh this sustainability is, is is of digital resources in general, as you're probably aware, is really a challenge. Mm-hmm. TDAR is funded now primarily through grants and contracts. So we have contracts basically we we've been committed from the very beginning to making data available for free. So that is it mm-hmm. it never costs anything to download data and we charge for the upload of data if you want personalized training we charge for that there's lots of free training that's available online and we charge for what we call data curation so for mm-hmm. for contractors or agencies that have a bunch of data that they want to get deposited basically it's it's important or it's critical really for the usability of of and findability of data to have good metadata so the metadata is the information about the data. you know, Who did it? Where did they do it? Why did they do it? What's the location? What's the time period? And so forth. So, creating good metadata allows the data to be found, but that takes some time. And that's actually the most time-consuming part of it. Uploading it, as you can imagine, doesn't take very long mm-hmm. at all. But creating the metadata is something that really takes some time. In many cases, agencies or whoever wants to deposit the data, don't have the personnel to do that, or they'd rather simply pay somebody else to do it. So much of our revenue is doing just that. That is taking a whole bunch of of reports, sometimes in paper and other times digitally, and our data curators will go through those and extract the relevant metadata, do the uploads, check everything is correct, and then deposit the data with TDAR. We'll actually deposit it sort of provisionally, send it to the contractor to whoever our client is for review, and then it'll be made publicly available. Mm -hmm. In some cases, we get grants specifically to do the curation where, as a part of the grant, this is often the case for National Science Foundation grants, the grantee will do the data upload and do the metadata creation. So we designed TDAR so that people could do the metadata creation on their own. And then there's an upload fee associated with, uh, depending upon the size primarily of the data set uh, Mm -hmm. and type. So it's a combination of those uh, basically labor services, which are the data curation and then the upload cost on a per file
1: basis. Okay. I have a question about that upload cost. Um, you, you've mentioned it a couple times now. Is there an ongoing curation cost, or is it all uh, encompassed by that single upfront cost? Yeah, the way we designed it, and the way it continues to be, was there
3: is not an ongoing cost. It's 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 a one time fee for doing mm-hmm. the upload, and the the goal was to try to make that sufficient to cover not just the initial cost, but the original goal, which I don't think we've met, was to basically endow a data set. I mean, so that mm-hmm. is you you—you you try, and I think, and our model here is from the archaeology data service in the UK, which has been mm-hmm. quite successful, is you basically charge enough that when you sort of consider that that the storage costs are decreasing over time, if you were to sort of invest some of that money, you obviously don't invest that individually per data set, but sort of put that in a pool, you then are providing enough inf- enough. Revenue to do it. We haven't ever been able to meet that yet, but what we're what we're doing now is is basically the the ongoing costs are mostly the storage costs are fairly small. Um, data migration can be more expensive. You know, if all of a sudden Microsoft changes how its you know database files are organize then you know, or how PDF documents are done or something that Adobe does, then we need to migrate those data sets so they continue to be readable and usable. And that's, that's a more challenging and more expensive proposition. But we're, the idea is to try to have a one-time fee that will cover both the ongoing storage and maintenance costs. Um, and part of it is just the software maintenance, because as you know, you know this is a big package that depends on lots of open source other software packages that get security updates and other kinds of updates or that that stop being supported. And so there's an ongoing software maintenance cost, which is actually probably our our largest sort of technical cost associated mm-hmm. with, with the uh, with the, with the structure.
2: Yeah. Ongoing software development and maintenance costs are usually the thing that people don't even think about the most. We've talked to, yeah, we talked to other people that have put together software packages, whether they're open source or not, or, or something they're trying to sell. And they're like, Oh yeah. So we're going to put this together. And I'm like, great. What does this look like in a year when iOS 17 comes out or when, you know, the next Android operating system comes out or, you know, the next operating system for your computer for that matter. You know, what's uh what's that look like? So yeah, that's absolutely huge. And then along those lines, is you know, CR- again, I have a CRM focus, but CRM companies are just used to paying for stuff, you know, subscriptions, you know, Esri costs and you know all kinds of stuff that we have to pay for. Has there ever been any discussion about like a, I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily call it a tax, but like a TDAR tax on CRM (laughs) firms. Like, like if you plan on getting federal permitting, then you have to pay so much into TDAR as a, as, as a part of this or something like that. Right. I'm just curious as to doing something like that would maybe encourage them to use TDAR, but then also provide ongoing revenue. Right.
3: Oh yeah. I mean, and basically that's something like that has been our model from the beginning. Our idea was, That basically the agencies would put into RFPs that just like they put yeah. in curation costs for artifacts, they put in curation right. costs for TDAR so that the, an RFP would say, well, and the, each, any contractor who wants to bid on this has to have a plan for the data curation. And yeah. TDAR would be the obvious place for that and budget for it. We've talked as a as a way of implementing that. We've talked about also just having a subscription. So it would cost either an agency. We've talked to the agencies about this a bit. You know, if they would come up with, you know, if, if it's a big agency, mm-hmm. you know, some substantial amount of money every year, and that would cover all of their contractors. So that's another right. model that we've thought of, and then that, that way. But part of our original idea with the just having it part of the RFP, was that there wouldn't be any new money involved. That is, we weren't trying to get money from the agencies. The agencies always complain that they have you know, not enough staff <laughs> and not enough money. But if we just put the costs into the ongoing contracts, that doesn't take care of the legacy data, but it would take care of the ongoing data. We haven't gotten there yet. We're, we had a big meeting last March, I think, with the Lead people in almost all the federal agencies about how to sort of implement something like this to mm-hmm. sort of get there. The problem with doing it with the CRM firms, which we're very happy to do and we can do right now, mm-hmm. is that the, the the feedback we get is that yeah, as soon as as soon as the government requires it, we'll be happy to do it. But otherwise. Exactly. But otherwise our bids are going to be non-competitive because our competitors across the street or in the other are gonna not do it and it's gonna cost them less to do the same project. So yeah, basically we've gotten I, I gave a presentation a few years ago in Spokane, I think, to Accra about mm-hmm. about TDR. And you know, we get a lot of sympathy about yes, this would be really good because I know in CRM firms people spend a lot of term – a lot of time on a new project digging up all the reports from other contractors who've worked mm-hmm. in the same area and stuff like that. Um, so you know it would it would be a good thing, but we haven't even though we have a lot of sympathy from the contractors and actually Acra has a nice statement about what what ought to be done in terms of digital that the board adopted there's you know there hasn't been much action with a few exceptions from the from the contractors themselves for reasons I completely understand sure.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting to me that you're mentioning building it into the contracts, not related to TDR at all, but a similar sort of thing is that on academic projects I've worked on, part of the grant application process is now uh, describing in detail what your digital management plan is your DMP because without it, <laughs> you're not going to get that grant because they don't trust that you're going to curate the data effectively. So you know those also are coming out of you know NSF and other uh, federal agencies. So I would expect that there's already some purchase, I don't know, within the uh, the agencies that govern CRM work, but I expect that there's already the knowledge of the, the need for such a thing in funding agencies and regulatory agencies.
3: Yeah, I mean, they recognize the need, but they they also have, haven't come up with any way. You know, it's amazing to me that really, you know, we I think our first production version of TDAR was in... 2010 or so. So, it's been 13 years. We've been pushing this since before then. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, if you talk at the local level, they'll say, well, you know, whatever the, the state, let's say Bureau of Land Management or whoever it is, well, you know, somebody else needs to tell me to do this. And then... You talk at different levels, and we've talked at the national level, and people sort of saying, well, yeah, we we should do something, but there's all these problems, and, you know, th- there's always some sort of impediment to to doing it. I mean, everybody says, yes, we need to do something. Nobody says it's a bad idea. Nobody says TR doesn't work. But <laughs> getting them to actually do something has been a, a real challenge.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, with that, let's take our last break and we'll have a little bit longer discussion on the other side as we wrap this up with Dr. Keith Kinteg. Back in a minute.
0: You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.
2: Welcome back to the ArcheoTech podcast. And we are wrapping up this discussion on TDAR and, you know, digital Preservation methods, so to speak, uh, in general with Dr. Keith Kinteg. and a couple segments ago in the segment one, and we didn't get to it last time, we were talking about the subject of data ownership and how, you know, that is a problem with CRM, of course, you know, private companies paying for cultural resources to get done, not on federal land or on a place where that report doesn't get stored with, say, the BLM or the, you know, the Army Corps or something like that. What what kind of discussions have you guys had around that with the storage of potentially that kind of data and access to it and things around that nature? I think there's sort of two parts to that. One thing TDR does that's essential for for CRM
3: data is it has two different kinds of data sets. All the all the metadata is public, but the data mm-hmm. sets can either be confidential or public. Okay. And confidential, basically, in the US. There's some categories, particularly site locations, that are are protected under federal law. Mm-hmm. They're protected from FOIA requests and things like that. Mm-hmm. And there's no way that most agencies are going to allow any data to go in as public that have site locations and that sort of thing. So what we've encouraged people to do with reports is to try to segregate the parts of reports. Often there could be an appendix that's a technical appendix that has the site locations or maybe just a table of site locations or other confidential information and then put the body of the report that doesn't contain any confidential information. The other way to deal with it is to have a confidential report and then a redacted report where with acrobat you go mm-hmm. through and you and you redact the confidential information and and ideally people would be putting in where there is confidential information they'd be putting in both a confidential report where the agency's doing the depositing or the individual or company doing the depositing controls the access that is mm-hmm. if somebody wants to, they somebody else may find the metadata Right in TDAR, you can generate a quest to the data owner saying, you know, can, I would like to get access to this and here's who I am and here's why. And then the owner can decide and then go on TDAR and either give them permission or or just let it go. So that that sort of part of it is covered. What we haven't sort of dealt with, and I think it really just needs to be dealt with by the federal agencies, is, is the sort of idea that... The contractors or the contractors, um, the contractor's client—you know, some mm-hmm. private client, land developer, or whatever—they somehow own the data because they paid for it. I mean, my view is that they've paid for, to the extent that it's something that is done subject to federal law or regulation or a state law or regulation. The whole purpose of the federal regulation is to get that to preserve that information, and if it's not preserved in a way that can be used by the parties by responsible parties there's no point in doing it so i th- i think there just needs to be uh, in my view some clarity from the federal agencies that no to the contractors no you can't you know part of you don't you don't own the data your your client does not own the data the federal government if anybody owns it It's a it's a public resource because it was generated with public money or was generated due to a public interest as expressed
2: through ARPA or an HPA or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm wondering, as we're in this last segment here what you would like the future of TDAR to be, right? I mean, I think we all know where we'd want it to go, but I think from a realistic standpoint in the, in the near term, but then in the, in the far future, what would you like to see TDAR become?
3: Well, first, of all, I'd like to see it become the, the place where people deposit data, whether it's from an mm-hmm. academic project or a CRM project. And I think the route to that is for one way or the other agencies, just like they require the curation of, of uh, artifactual materials to require the, the curation of digital uh, materials in a mm-hmm. responsible digital repository um, that can make them findable and accessible and preserve them in the long term. So I think the only the way to do that is is for agencies to to one way or another require that, in right. and pay for it either you know directly from the individual contracts or through some sort of subscription, but in some way, in a broader sense, my goal is that also that TEER would be used a lot, that people would use it to do the kinds of synthesis of data that isn't really covered by our model of cultural heritage in the U.S. That mm-hmm. is. You know, we, the whole model in the U.S. is the sort of polluter pays model where if somebody's going to, you know, whether it's build a cell tower or build a highway, you know, whoever's doing the damage needs to pay for the mitigation. But that is done on a sort of project by project or often site by site basis. Mm-hmm. But nobody's paying for sort of putting all this together, you know. And so we right. get a lot of comments about, yeah, you know, how many more you know, burned rock mints. do we need to see or how many more penthouses <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. And without some way of, of synthesizing that data, we need to really, you know, what's what's the point? And so the synthesis, what we're trying to do is enable that synthesis. We've got some really powerful data integration tools that will allow you to take, and our our biggest success there has been with faunal data, where you can have a input and ontology of faunal data categories, whether it's species or different kinds of damage to the bones or element whatever we got a group of people together internationally to develop a set of ontologies for the variables that faunal analysts typically use mm-hmm. any individual data set can then be mapped into that ontology at a in a hierarchical way and then you can do a data integration we've now got a, a project that kate spielman led I don't know, 350,000 elements across the Southwest from, I don't know, 30-some sites, wow. all, all integrated so that you can query that as one integrated data set. So having people use the, the data integration features of TDAR, or do it on their own if they want to, but to really be able to use TDAR to do archaeological synthesis. And I've been involved with, with Jeff Alchel in the creation of the Coalition for Archaeological Synthesis, which is really developed, devoted to
2: encouraging archaeological synthesis and trying to figure out ways to do it. Okay. Looking back at your comment about you know data synthesis analysis and having people use TDAR, I'm wondering, is TDAR jumping on the AI bandwagon like uh, pretty much everybody else is these days? Because I've Always said, and it's really bad here in Nevada, I think, because we, you know, we walk across the desert on a huge pipeline or something like that, and, you know, we record these two flake lithic scatters that nobody really cares about, or single flake, you know, isolates and things like that, that by themselves don't really mean anything, but together as a whole, obviously you can tell things from that, but it's difficult for humans to see that sometimes. You know what I mean? And like I said, is TDAR thinking about? using or integrating any sort of AI tools in order to help with some of these things or anything else.
3: We haven't really talked about that specifically. We have talked about and done a little experimentation with automated metadata creation that is having mm. the machine basically read the report and be able to extract the metadata. I mean that would that would go a long ways, sure. And ADS has done some experiments with this. That's probably the the closest thing you know, it's sort of AI related and we put in a proposal, I put in with an AI guy at Arizona State a few years ago, but it turns mm-hmm. out to be pretty complicated to to do that. Okay. Just because of the way archaeological reports are structured and, you know, sure. you know, there's simply the mention of a pottery type, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> somebody could say, and we didn't find any X. Well, that then X shows right. a- up.
1: <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> so, but I think I think there is some there is some future I think in doing that. We hadn't talked about AI for analysis. I think there has been. I reviewed an NSF proposal of you know doing some visual stuff with AI, basically related or neural network processing of images to try to extract things. But we haven't and we we haven't done too much on the analysis side. I think that's is probably. We've got plenty to do, so I think that's probably for other people to do, but we could certainly try to supply the data to make that possible.
2: Okay. You know, I think I know the answer to this, but I want to hear what you say. Who's TDAR's biggest, I want to, I don't want to say competitor necessarily, because we shouldn't be competing for archaeological data, but I guess obstacle maybe <laughs> to national dominance in, in data storage. Who is the biggest competitor right now?
3: You know, we don't i mean the only the only other thing that i 'm even aware of really, and of something that's sort of organized, I mean our biggest competitor yeah. is really everybody putting their own stuff on their own hard disk and then thinking they've thinking they 've dealt with their data, but I mean that 's right. the real competition
2: right Dropbox
3: <laughs> right <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> uh, open- con- open context yes. that's run by eric mm-hmm. and and Sarah Kanza has been. You know they they advertise themselves as a publishing platform, but they're they're doing a lot of good work. We've actually got a joint grant with them to implement that Sarah, i mean i I led an initial effort, and then Sarah's led the current one to implement the fair and care data principles mm-hmm. and doing this across open context, but bringing in agency people, native people, a big group to really try to figure out how to do that. So, Open Context does some of what we do. Open Context is not, all of the data in Open Context is public. They don't have any ability to do confidential data and they don't want it. But that basically rules them out for dealing with CRM data in almost all cases. So Mm -hmm. it's not really competition for the most part. I mean, in some cases, academic units will go to them rather than us. But it's not, I don't, that's not the real obstacle, I think, for us. Mm -hmm. But I I I think what they do is really important and they've done a lot of good right Good work, both within Open Context and just in publicizing what needs to be done. But we're very much in sync with them, and we support them, and they support us in many ways.
2: Yeah, yeah It seems like bringing all these all these things together would help. I think uh, I think give people a little more confidence in you know where they're putting their data and what's going on. Because the other one that came to mind was DINA, the Digital Index of North American Archaeology. I think it is, and they're. Cataloging, so to speak, of archaeological sites on on public lands in the southeast, and I don't know how far they've branched out these days, but it, it all seems to come together to to be really good for archaeologists to do analysis and, and large scale analysis and to really see the big picture out there and and to find things. But there's still. I don't know. To me, there's still really should only be, you know, one place where everybody goes. There, again, there shouldn't be competition. There should just be, hey, do you want to store data here? You go here. You want to do a big data analysis? Well, you go here. You know, it should be the same place because that's where the data is stored. But I don't know if I don't know how long it would take us to get to that point. Somebody would have to come and buy everything up and provide a lot of funding, probably.
3: Oh, it's even worse than that. I mean, I, I you know. The- <laughs> I mean, the, Dina is, you know, basically most of the states in the West have simply refused to deal with them. Right. And so I think the, the state site files are the other place where a lot of data goes. But those, mm-hmm. I was actually for a long time or for several years early in my career responsible for the state of Arizona system right. as, as site. But those those things are so tightly held and you even try to have a discussion with those groups and they're like incredibly protective and you couldn't possibly i mean i think that's a long ways off to be able to integrate all of those Red. all hmm. of those site files okay that's a huge political problem each almost every state has their own and then like the forest yeah. service has its system which is totally closed and <laughs> You know, so the the state site, the site files are really the most difficult thing. Although Andina has tried their best to try to sort mm-hmm. of make some of those data available, it's not really competition to TDAR because
2: they're not storing the the data and so forth. Sure. Okay. Yeah, it'd be more more like a layer on top of what TDAR has if if we could look at it that way, right? Right. Okay. Well, we're just about at the end here. Is there anything you wanted to mention and get out there about TDAR that we haven't talked about?
3: No, I just encourage people to go to TDAR.org and try it out. And there's lots of information. Um, if you have any questions, contact the staff. I'm, there's a contact us button there. But really, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great resource. It's there. We recently obtained the Core Trust Seal, sort of certifying the capabilities of TDAR. And we're the only one that's got that certification in the U.S. So I mm-hmm. encourage
2: people to try it. It's, it really is a great resource for, for archaeology. Awesome. All right. Well, maybe uh, maybe next year we can debut the TDAR podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. We'll talk about that. So, <laughs> Okay. All right. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Thank, thank you, you, Keith, for coming on. Thanks for coming yep, on. And- Absolutely. And anything else you guys want to talk about in the future, you know where to find us. And we were more than happy to talk about it. Anybody that's got questions or, or comments or anything like that, find us in all the socials and you can comment right on this episode at arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech forward slash 210. With that, we'll see you guys next time.
1: Thanks for listening to the Archaeotech podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Contact us at Chris at Archaeology podcast Network.com and Paul at lugalcom Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening.